Accordingly, we know that the miracles and sufferings which he freely endured in the flesh belong to the same person. The Holy Trinity did not add a fourth prosopon when the divine Logos, who is one of the Trinity, was incarnate and became man. Nor do we believe that the divine Logos and Christ are different persons, but we confess that the Lord Jesus Christ and the divine Logos are one and the same. The Emperor Justinian Welcome, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi, continuing our discussion of the Second Council of Constantinople. In fact, in the last episode, we didn't even get to the Council, so we will today, Lord willing, get into the Council. Zellwin, how's it going? It's going well, Willie. I'm enjoying some warmer weather and had a nice walk yesterday with my children, so I think it's... it's it, I'm hopeful. Maybe it's even starting to become spring around here, but I'm not so, going to hold my so breath. So good weather, and did all the children make it home? <laughs> yes. Good. good. So it's wild out there on the prairie between Apaches and and moose and uh, windigos, whatever you got going up there. You got to have the oldest boy pack heat while we're on, on the trail. You know, well, stuff I would like think that, nothing so. less. I would think nothing less. <laughs> Continuing on in gratuitous weather posting, it, we actually have had snow here the last couple of days. What's that about? This I don't. This doesn't make any sense, Willie. How do you have snow and I don't? Nothing makes any sense. This, these are truly strange times. Volcanoes erupting. There's earthquakes. Locusts <laughs> are eating chunks of Israel. Dogs and cats living together. <laughs> I don't even. I don't even know what anything is anymore. I just know that every Thursday, there's going to be a new word fitly. And so you can set your watch by that most weeks. Until you can't, so forget I said that. But (laughs) it's, yeah, crazy, crazy weather, crazy times. I'm assuming by the time this episode airs, we'll still be under house arrest. So uh, we'll see how that's going. But maybe by then, we'll be able to get out and get the garden put in and do some wholesome activities. Sounds like a plan. Right. But other than that, yeah, I mean, at least it makes weather posting a little bit more fun, I suppose. <laughs> no, it's it's a good time. And I'm I'm enjoying the weather. I'm enjoying where things are at right now. And I'm looking forward to things being being done and getting back to some semblance of normal. So are you still going to be doing uh, the open air preaching when the weather's good or only when the weather is awful? <laughs> Nah, yeah, that's just going to go on, you know, basically as the new normal. No, I, I that'll that'll continue basically as long as as we need to. But I'm looking forward to being back inside. I mean, in it's got to be hard because after every sermon, your microphone turns into gold, and I don't know how you're going to keep <laughs> buying new Yetis. Uh, I'm I'm not sure what to do with this, but go on. <laughs> it is pretty amazing, fam. So good to see. Well, I'm not saying, you. yeah, and, and I, you know, I, I know the feeling that I had when I watched it, and that feeling was covetousness. That would be the emotion <laughs> that was felt. And, but yeah, keep, keep up, keep up the good work. I'm sure if we pulled a trailer in in Illinois, you know, the bad guys from Red Dawn would show up and shut us down. <laughs> you know, I really, as a kid, I watched that movie way too much, and I'm I was prepared for it, but then the you know it. Reality turned the the villain on its head, apparently. So that's where we are. And where we have to be. (laughs) And where we have to be. 
vigilant and ready and self-sufficient. You know, if it's it's really interesting to see in all this, and I think, and I hope, or I hope rather, that in the long run, people take some of these lessons of self-sufficiency and self-reliance to heart, because you see all the seeds sold out in a lot of places, canning equipment, other things like that. So it's pretty interesting to see, and maybe some people will take take some of the lessons that they're learning during this quarantine to heart, and will be a little bit more self-sufficient when it's all said and done. But Lord you know Billing. me, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm an optimist, so I totally don't expect them all to go back to <laughs> Nintendo Switches and fast food once it's all done. <laughs> I mean, seriously, oh, it's, it's, it, it really is. And I know we got to, we'll, we'll get to the council, but uh, just an interesting phenomenon here that if you didn't know it by now, They Live was a documentary. <laughs> and and we're, we're seeing people really kicking against the consumerism that's going on, but you're seeing a lot of people embrace it too. You know, there's more binge watching going on on some people and some people are starting to kick against the goads and say, no, enough of this. This isn't good for me. And so I don't know who's going to win. Stay tuned to find out. Will a big consumerism win? Will localism win? Are we going to have walled cities again? Uh, I know Henry Kissinger's scared of that. And anything that makes Henry Kissinger worry a little bit, it's got to be okay. So, you know, what's George Soros saying? Who knows? But it, it's just very, very interesting times. And uh, I don't know, maybe we should do a follow-up word fitly once this all, is all said and done and kind of see where the culture is. Have we have we just gone back to a Disney-controlled entertainment and food diet? Or has theonomy finally taken root? And uh, and the millennium being ushered in in the post-millennial fashion. We'll find out soon enough, I guess. I feel like I've <laughs> poked a sleeping bear here. but No, it's just, it's just fun to see. And, you know, I know the listeners out there are wondering the same things I am. So let us know what you think happens in the comments. Oh, so, all right. Good. Well, we left off with Anastasius, and I think enough right. has been said on him. So let's just jump right into Justin the First. All right. Now, Justin is not a name, by the way, that you really associate with royalty these days. <laughs> you know, Justin's the kid with the bowl cut that I played Little League with. and Or, or the guy that hates his dad or something. Yeah. No, I know. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. No. Yeah. No, I, yeah, Justin the First. Well, see, because when Anastasius dies in the year 518, he also dies without having any children. Okay. It's kind of a common theme in this time time frame of the late empire, but that's that's what happens. So Justin the First is becomes the new emperor. He's actually kind of set in place over several more obvious choices within Anastasius's family. As a result, when Justin comes to power, he has to put to death several pretenders to the throne because there's lots of intrigue going on. But he basically settles everything down. And so we have the beginning of a new and a very important and probably one of the most important dynasties within the Roman Empire, and especially in the late Roman Empire, the Justinian dynasty. So this is, this is a very important time period within late Roman history. Mm-hmm. Now, Justin is also important because Justin will restore all the relations with the West that had been broken during the past two emperors with Zeno and Anastasius. So the the Acacian schism comes to an end. The Pope and the emperor start to get along again. And 
basically things are starting to look up. Now, Justin is also a very convinced Chalcedonian. He is not a monophysite like his predecessor had been. And so he's taking several steps to start to make orthodoxy the, the official religion within the empire again. And maybe just as a couple other things to note here, during the days of Justin, the Persians break out in a major war starting in the year 522 because of a couple of things that go on. And so when that's all happening then with this war with Persia, in the year 527, he crowns his nephew, a man by the name of Petrus Sabatius, whom we know better as Justinian, along with his wife Theodora as his successor. And then uh, Justin dies shortly afterward in the year 527. So that's kind of, that's really kind of brushing over Justin's reign quite a bit. But I know we do want to get onto the council and kind of the more immediate context of the council. But are there any things that you want to ask about him, Willie? Um, do we know how he comes to be Chalcedonian? Like what, like what persuades him that way? I'm pretty sure he's of kind of a more Western extraction because I, the, you know, kind of coming from more of the, uh, the Western controlled middle territories of that area. So he's probably has a lot of Western influence going on. And when wow. he, when he comes to power, that's probably also why he's trying to restore relations with the West. Cause he, he wants to, bring everything back together. He wants, he doesn't want to be at war with the Pope like the, like we'd seen previously. And so he's just trying to fix things again. Hmm. Does that answer the question? Yes, it does. All right. And so now we come to the glorious emperor, Justinian. <laughs> oh, Justinian. Yes. I feel like, I feel like just having a few minutes on Justinian is, is going to short change this, this, magnificent man because he is easily one of the most important Roman emperors ever, period, including the pagan ones. I mean, Justinian is, I mean, if you know nothing else about the late Roman Empire, you probably know something about Justinian, if not because of the things that he's done, but also because of the things that he's left behind. Right. Like our, like our, the basis for our civil law, for example. Right? Exactly. Or the, the great and magnificent Hagia Sophia. Press F for Constantinople <laughs> and for it being a church, but... Side note, we'll be taking it back. <laughs> Deus fault. But anyway, Justinian is extremely important because he is going to take a large number of steps to try to reunify the empire, to try to win back the West. And during at least the first half of his long reign, which goes from 527 to 565, he is quite successful, actually. Because, yes, he's at war with Persia in 528, but he wins that battle. He, and, in, and in 532, signing a peace treaty so that he can focus on uh, regaining the West. There's also several wars which he has in Italy as well as Africa. Procopius, who is the, the most important historian for this time period, details these campaigns in great detail. But it just goes to show how dedicated Justinian was to winning back the West and to try to regain everything that had been lost in the previous century, the, the famous uh, Renovatio Imperii, you know, the renovation of the empire. So he's, 
He's very, he's also very Western in his outlook. You know, he speaks Latin at a time when Greek had become common. So he really sees himself as being kind of a, a Roman par excellence. He's doing everything that he can to build up the empire and to win back some of the glory that had been lost. There's more to talk about him, but where do you want to go, Willie, in this first segment? Well, let's start with his wife and religion then. Okay. As far as his wife, another a very famous woman from this time period, uh, the Empress Theodora, who he married in 522, actually kind of scandalous because she was not of royal blood. In fact, she was considered to be an, an actress, which kind of has very negative connotations within this time period. She may have even well, compared to their stunning re- compared to their stunning reputation now. Right, I know. She may have been considered a <laughs> prostitute. I mean, it's not entirely certain, but it's it's very sketchy. And so it caused a, causes a big scandal, but Justin allows it to happen and even if she did have a shady beginning, she certainly becomes a very, well, very Christian woman. Because her, her religious outlooks are very different from her husband's, but we'll get to that. So, And also with uh, some of the Justinian things going on, you'd also mentioned his legal reforms. I think that's also something we should mention, because he very famously produces uh, the Codex Justinian, which is still the basis of many of our laws today. You know, this is kind of the foundation of Western law in general. And now he does that from, you know, between the years 528 and 534, where he's compiling all the Roman laws that had been promulgated, and he's kind of editing them, and he's kind of putting them all into one giant codex, one giant book, that then the the lawyers are able to actually use, because it was just kind of a convoluted mess prior to this point. So he does everything that he can to clarify the law and also to add some things too, because he's doing everything that he can to really bring this all together. Okay. Now, with his religious outlooks, Justinian is very firmly a convinced Chalcedonian. He's very firmly on the side of orthodoxy. But he's also very interested in trying to find some way of reconciling the two sides. So he's not shy of proclaiming what is actually the truth, but he's doing everything that he can to bring it back together because he doesn't want the church to split. He doesn't want there to be factions within the church. And so he is striving to fix things as best that he can. Now, his wife, Theodora, for example, I had mentioned earlier, she was actually a convinced monophysite. Now, we won't get into the whole why she's considered a saint in the East these days. We don't actually want to, because we, we need to, because we talked about it quite a bit in preparing for this. <laughs> Theodora is considered a saint in orthodoxy. Right. And we want to know why, because she's a monophysite, or at least a miaphysite, if we want to make, if we want to split that here. <laughs> so here's the thing. We hear a diff- we, we have a couple different justifications. One says she repented. Another says basically, well, vocabulary misunderstanding. If you know the answer and have a satisfying answer, please let us know because we can't exactly figure it out why she's considered a saint when she's not orthodox. And we, well, we, we, we also theorized maybe because she died before the council. Right. Because she dies on June 28th, 548, about what? three years before the council. So maybe that's it. I'm not sure. But especially with this too, because she's also well known for 
supporting and actually kind of protecting monophysites within the empire, even sometimes right. against what her husband is doing. So, I mean, right, which, which is a problem, which is a problem. But I mean, so I don't know how she is a saint either or is considered a saint yeah. in the East. <laughs> I mean, and she is a, a, a pious woman. Certainly. As, as for the most part. I mean, other than plotting against her husband sometimes, but or going against his orders, we should say. But like she's pious, but is that enough to attain sainthood in the Orthodox understanding? And I don't think so. So yeah, so if anyone knows, please let us know. Because we, we did a little digging and we couldn't really find a satisfactory answer. And most of them would be no sources that would just say, oh, she repented before she died. <laughs> Which is... I mean, handy, I suppose. Maybe she did. I'm not saying she didn't. I'm, I'm going to need. We could only need a book on that one, though. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> well, and I mean, and as far as her piety goes, we sh- we don't want to paint her as being this black hat against her husband's white hat or something either, because she did do some very godly things in the sense of like arresting pimps and se- and freeing girls who had been sold into sex slavery, the seedy underbelly of Byzantine um, life at that time. So I mean, she, well, and there's one, and there's one for all this nonsense about. But the Christians, look what they did. They've only ever done terrible things. Yeah, like building hospitals and rescuing sex slaves. <laughs> oh, those terrible Christians. <laughs> what, what were they thinking? What 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 are they doing? Yeah, what were they thinking? Like, and in ex- you cannot say that Christianity has not been a driving force for good and be an honest student of history. Well, I, it's just I the way even, it is. I can't even argue with that. So. Right. Well, what about all the abuses in Rome today? Hey, string them up. I'm with you. After a fair trial, do what needs to be done and punish them. Absolutely. We shouldn't tolerate that. We shouldn't tolerate any kind of abuse, whether in, in Protestant churches either, which have covered things up. But you can't use like these examples to just brush away all of the good done, and even by good Christian rulers, which kind of goes back to our discussion in the previous episode concerning this about the authority the Christian authority of rulers and and what it actually looks like when a Christian ruler is in charge. And this is what it looks like because look, if she had stayed a pagan or if she had been a pagan, she wasn't going to stop this stuff. Right. Because pagans supported this. It's a cottage industry for them. So informed by her faith as Empress, she stops this. Right. This human trafficking. And you only get that kind of stuff happening where, you know, God is, and where the spirit of God in particular is and where Christ is confessed. You don't get that in other places. Not that kind, not that kind of, uh, of legal precedent anyway. Right. This is when somebody comes in with some other examples of other religions doing, doing good things to try to discredit the Christian church. It's not going to work folks. <laughs> well, well, maybe you can just bring back uh, Justinian's decree of penalizing pedophiles with castration. And I'm going to leave it at that because we're at our first break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. The word of the Lord says, Get wisdom, get understanding, forget it not, neither decline from the words of my mouth. You can check out all of the Word Fitly Spoken podcasts on Podbean, iTunes, or your favorite podcast app. We'll be right back.
Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to Word Fitly. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi, talking the Emperor Justinian and controversial legal punishments uh, in the modern <laughs> age. I guess we're going to have to add Fed posting to gratuitous weather posting now. <laughs> we're quite a few episodes in to be using fake names, so I guess, you know, if we go missing, we'll see in the gulag, folks. <laughs> if you find us strung up, you know, it wasn't us. It wasn't us. Yeah. <laughs> it was. I'm, we're all feeling we're in good spirits and of sound mind. Let the reader understand. <laughs> but yeah, so um, these Christian emperors actually punished these offenses very severely. And now most people are going to be okay with banning, you know, human trafficking and that sort of thing nowadays. It's the, it's the other things that people are a bit uncomfortable with. And you know what? Hey, that's okay. Uh, be uncomfortable. You probably should be. So in addition to execute or to castrating certain people, he also forbids pagans from holding office. Right. And, and heretics. So right. uh, now, that, now that's an interesting one. That's one that people wouldn't like today because even Chick-fil-A has no religious requirements for a manager. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, and it's not been actually that long in our American history where you still kind of had to be a Christian to hold office. To say nothing of English history and uh, right. like Catholic acts and that sort of thing, but right. And I'm going to keep uh, you know talking about some of these uh, ancillary issues simply because the actual canons of uh, this council are not the most riveting radio zone. I know, uh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it, it is interesting. Uh, this is another thing where people would bristle. Oh, a, a Christian forbidding anybody but Christians from holding office. Like, yeah, that's that's the way it was. <laughs> that's the way it be. Uh, in in those days, and nobody nobody's going to bat an eye because it's the emperor. Well, and that sort of thing would have continued quite a, quite a long time, as we were pointing out. So, right, you know, nowadays because of pluralism, we've we've kind of accepted it as the norm. But we do see, and without saying whether it's right or wrong, but we do see the conflicts that that brings even to our own legislatures. Sure, that different religions have different. What's the word you want to use? Have each religion has its own ethos, right? So right. we can't just just expect everybody to go, well, okay, we have this constitution or we have this body of law in our state. Well, we're just all going to follow that. That's the, that's the ideal, but that is not what happens. And I think it's okay to have these conversations and to get it out there instead of just pretending like everybody's working toward the same goal because they're, they're, they're not. They, they absolutely aren't. And I think that autocratic rulers understand that a little bit better. So, well, every, maybe everybody understands, but autocratic rulers are able to go, well, this isn't going to work, so we're going to do it my way. And, and and as I said in the previous episode, that's all well and good when they're on your side, but when they're not, it doesn't go so well. We need only look at any communist regime, right? As right. far as you know, what can be bad, uh, especially for the church. And and so again, I just find this 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 fascinating Christian emperors and what Christianity looked like, what the government looked like when actual Christians were in charge. And I know a lot of people will object, Zelwyn, and probably say, well, he ordered these mutilations of people or executions or these imprisonments, and that's not very Christian. What would you say to that? Uh, well, for one thing, it's, <laughs> it's importing... It's importing our own viewpoints into the past and judging them as a result of it and not really being historically fair to begin with. 
So, I mean, in the interest of historical fairness, you have to understand they wouldn't have seen any kind of conflict between this. Right. You know, and, and as far as like in our own day, you know, we have become so enamored with the idea of pluralism or just at least tolerant of the idea of pluralism that these sorts of actions, you know, make us uncomfortable because we just we're 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 coloring our own expectations even before we we get to the answer. Yeah, you know? in in our our time in America, I think a lot of this is filtered through like Jerry Falwell and the moral majority and people have a bad taste in their mouth from that. Even though everything to be fair, everything those guys said would come to pass actually did come to pass. <laughs> to be fair. <laughs> to be fair. And at least so far they're batting 1000. So people would say, oh, well, look how awful they were. We don't want that. We don't want the church to be associated with that. And so as the church has ceded ground, people have tried to say, see, we're morally better because we're totally separate from government. And is that the case? What have we won by that? Have the churches grown because Mm. we've ceded everything to culture? Ask the ELCA that. Yeah, point me to your big inclusive megachurch if you want, but I would like to see a running tally of regular attendance and not just... In one door, not the other. I really would like to know these things. Have we gained much by seeding? And and even and, and let's take it outside the context of conversion. Have we brought harm upon those we are called to protect by seeding the culture to enemies of the gospel? I think that's a question worth asking. And I wonder if these if these uh, emperors like Justinian didn't think about that too. I think it's far too easy just to say, well, he wanted to be right and wanted to assert power. But I would like to think that even an emperor can hold a sincere faith. Sure. Yeah. No, I I don't doubt that everything that Justinian did was, in fact, sincere. I think he's because you have to remember, he sees what he is doing as important to the protection of his empire and to the, the calling that he has as the emperor. Okay, mm-hmm. so he he sees his God given duty as protecting those who, whom he has been set over, and that includes trying to figure out and answer these religious questions. Now, because we have so separated the two and think that you know the secular culture can have nothing to do with with the church, or that the church can have you know, or vice versa, you know, we we kind of again we unfairly color the way that we look at Justinian for that reason. But when we consider what he's doing and what he's trying to do for the sake of the church, no, I don't think that there's any real conflict between what he's doing and being a Christian. Mm-hmm. We, might, we might not like his methods all the time, but, you know, that's, that was a different, different age. So Right. <laughs> well, we're going to get letters anyway. So Well, I suppose. It is what it is. Bring back Constantinople. New Rome Part 2. Bring it back. Although some would argue that Rome 3 is Russia, but that's an episode for another day. Yeah, well, now we're really getting far afield. But anyway. <laughs> well, let's let's get a little closer to the council here because it's about to be convened. Right. So to understand the council itself, we have to first understand what is called the three chapters controversy. And I had mentioned when we began the uh, the previous episode, a man by the name of Theodore of Mopsuestia, the teacher of Nestorius, or at least he was considered to be the teacher of Nestorius. And so a lot of what he was saying and a lot of what Nestorius was saying was on the minds of those at Chalcedon. And there was also a 
pair of supporters of Theodore by the name of Theodoret of Cyrus and Ibas of Edessa. Idris Elba? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Both of whom had actually opposed Cyril. They had actually written some kind of nasty things about him. And the Monophysites regarded both of them as, Nestori as Nestorian. Now, however, the problem was that the Council of Chalcedon had actually restored these two men back to their churches instead of condemning them as utter heretics. And Theodore of Mopsuestia was not actually condemned by name at the Council of Chalcedon. That caused a gigantic controversy. They're trying to figure out how could Chalcedon condemn Nestorianism and yet not say anything about the father of Nestorianism as well as not in actually not fully condemn these two men who had spoken ill of Cyril. And so they're trying to figure out, did Chalcedon make a mistake? Okay, that's kind of the, the basic question behind the three chapters. Did Chalcedon make a mistake? And how do we solve this issue? Now, this becomes an especially live question for Justinian because around the year 540, everything which had been going so well for him actually starts to tank. Everything's starting to go badly now. The, the, the victories that he had won in the West were kind of coming undone. The war with Persia starts over again. Uh, there's actually a great plague at this time period. The, the so-called Plague of Justinian, which was actually an early form of the bubonic plague, the Black Death, which would come into uh, medieval Europe, you know, several centuries later. And it killed a lot of people. So Justinian basically decides, I need to stop seeking this compromise, and I need to actually solve this question. And so he probably saw what was going on as God's way of saying, you're making a mistake. You need to fix this now. And so he now kind of backpedals from his previous reconciliation and now goes for actually solving the issue. I have more to say on that, but what do you want to what do you want to do with that? No, it's good. It's it, the three chapters controversy is interesting where and this is going to this is going to be a defense, especially with monophysites that comes up over and over again and continues down to this day. So mm -hmm. today, like Roman Catholics will say that, yeah, there were some theological errors of Theodore. And, you know, Theodoret and Ebus, well, the problem was they just misunderstood the language of Cyril of Alexandria. And that's a defense that I don't know how, how convincing it is. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where the monophysites right. are basically like, oh, we believe the same things. You just misunderstood the language. Yeah, I, I don't know. With monophysites today, I mean, they've had several centuries of kind of cooling off from the, the, the conflict. I mean, I don't think any monophysite in that time would have would have agreed with that defense. I don't think mm -hmm. so. I really don't. Yeah, I mean, it, it is more of a later Roman right. defense of it, as I, as I understand it. Right. You know, it, it just gets so weird with the West later on, because then you have, like, them disagreeing with the councils, but still affirming them. Right. And it's, you know... <laughs> It just goes to show that just because a council said it does not mean that we've defined, we've settled the issue once and for all. I mean, right, there, right. there's a there's a, a good Protestant sentiment, sentiment right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you do it. You do have this stuff later on where it's like, well, you know, this saint erred, but nobody's going to anathematize him now because he's already a saint. 
You know, yeah. it's just it's a, it's a, it becomes very almost disheartening <laughs> when you right. look at some of the stuff that goes on. In my opinion, um, when you well, see how the sausage is made, so to speak. <laughs> well, and that was also a very live issue around this debate too, because the- Theodore of Mopsuestia had been dead for more than a hundred years by this point, and so. Mm-hmm. A question that Justinian tries to answer and that, you know, all this tries to answer is how can we condemn someone who died within the church, who who died without being condemned as a heretic? You know, can we posthumously right. condemn someone and say that they were actually a heretic? Justinian well, is going to say yes, but go ahead. Right, because Justinian gets it, but... Yeah, he was wrong, and, and being dead doesn't make you right. And we have a big problem with this. Even even to in our day, whereby somebody who died, you know, even ten years ago can't be questioned. <laughs> well, he's dead now, and we also make this weird polite mistake of not debating people when they're alive, and then right. only coming out against them after they're dead, which is an, <laughs> a unique problem. We need to quit that. But we have the same thing. Hey, maybe this person said some things that were problematic. Well, he's dead, and let me tell you, he can't be proven wrong. Why? Well, he's dead. Don't mention it. <laughs> you know, and so it, it, I, I, I kind of get it. And I'm not naming names here, but you could all use sure. your imagination. Sure. And it's it's the way it goes. We would do better if we would just have the the grit to actually confront people and speak to people while they're alive. Sure. And get this hammered out. I mean, unless something's just discovered afterward. But it is the strange thing that once someone is is dead, they often become above reproach. And that was definitely at work here, too. So it's not a new issue by any means. So Right. And so Justinian just kind of had to say, oh, okay, I get it, but let's, we don't have to be nice. Let's just, <laughs> let's be level-headed here. We, we got we to solve this issue and actually solve it. So, yeah. Exactly. Well, and something that's also worth mentioning about Justinian, too, is that Justinian is not just an emperor who's trying to fix things in the church the way that a lot of his predecessors had done. Justinian is actually a fairly competent theologian in his own right. In fact, you can pick up uh, translations of some of his most important works, including his works uh, against the three chapters, and he makes some pretty straightforward, like pretty logical theological arguments. You know, he knows what he's talking about. So even, even Constantine, as important as he had been, or Theodosius II, as important as he has, had been, they didn't really leave behind any kind of treatises the way that Justinian did. And so we can't overlook that, too. The guy knows what he's talking about, and he's Yeah, the king sincere. as theologian is interesting. I mean, we, we, we do have some examples throughout history, but they're a long way. I right. mean, when's the last great English king that was a theologian? James? <laughs> I mean, Maybe. Adam's going to say, like, Charles, but I'm talking about Orthodox people here. <laughs> <laughs> he can't defend that, himself. That'll, so. that'll get listeners mad. No, no. But in all seriousness, I mean, when? Because you you can't really look at the English royals now and say they're paragons of of uh, traditional Christianity. Right. So what do you do? I mean, even Henry VIII was a theologian, all kinds of things. So there has been a tradition of that, the holy, the holy monarch, and at least understanding his faith. Have we had have we had an example a great example in American history? That would be a good one to discuss. Yeah, I don't know. We'd have to I'd have to do some digging on that one. So I mean the one Church of Christ president we had, not counting him. 
<laughs> he was an elder. You know, he's famously said he stepped down from the highest office to take a lesser one when he became president. <laughs> I don't know. And, and, I, and I mentioned this simply, again, because it's hard for us to get our minds around this, right. this kind of context. And, and, and suspicion creeps in because of that. Oh, well, I've never seen a leader in my lifetime who knew anything about Christianity. So surely Justinian, you know, he didn't write this. He had a ghostwriter or he didn't really even read this or something like that. No, he, he knew his stuff. He really did. And he was very well educated by the, the priests under him. So, I mean, he he was a theologian. He was a theologian king. Yeah. And an impressive one. And an impressive one, too. Now, it's it's worth saying maybe as we kind of close out this section and get into the council itself, so in the year 544 or 545, we're not really sure which, uh, J- Justinian actually issues the condemnation of the three chapters, you know, calling to condemn Theodore of Mopsuestia entirely, specific works of Theodoret, and a very specific letter of Ebus to Mari the Persian, where he had actually said that Cyril had erred. So that was where the, the actual th- three controversies thing, three chapters takes off. And around 550, which is just right before the council, the Monophysites are actually starting to become a little bit more willing to compromise with Justinian because of some divisions within their own camp. And so this kind of sets the immediate stage for the coming of the council itself. Now, we have to talk about, probably in the next segment, about Pope Vigilius and his role that he has in this, because that's actually kind of what I would consider the real story of the council, but we'll get into that here in just a minute. So what do you want to say before we, we go to break, Willie? Well, I don't want to get quite into, you know, obviously going to the next subject here right at the end of the segment, but, you know, suffice it to say, we are pushing you to think about these periods of time because they are important. Right. And to understand that there was a time when the relationship between the church and state was very different. Right. And to actually have us soberly talk about what that means, what the repercussions are. And and I really would admonish us to reflect on our current situation and, and ponder whether or not this is really what's best for the church. And I've said it before in several episodes, we romanticize this notion of persecution or the church thriving under it. Well, the church gets weaker and fatter when it's accepted. Maybe that's true, but you can't say that persecution doesn't destroy faith too. That persecution doesn't cause people to fall away. We can't just say, well, the mystery of election, they, they, would, have, they would have kept on with us anyway. I mean, that's, that's, that's sort of taking the words of our Lord and, and spinning them around. Sure. And ignoring the rest of the Bible where it says, you know, it's not good to be persecuted. So or, you know, to to suffer violence. It's actually a bad thing when that happens to the church. So we don't need to romanticize uh, Stalin's gulags because people persisted in the faith. We need to thank God that they did persist in the faith during that, but then to think of all of the damage and destruction done. When the church is free, the church is able to do amazing things. And when the church is not free, she is very much handicapped. And the church has, throughout history, been helped by godly rulers, and that's why we pray that our rulers would have wisdom. And really, we mean wisdom from above that may well inform them in temporal matters. Would you agree? Yeah. No, I'm well said. Right. Well, thanks, I guess. (laughs) Anyway, we'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken.
A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The Word, front and center, in doctrine, in history, in life. That's the mission of A Word Fitly Spoken. We've got more on the way. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi talking the Second Council of Constantinople. So, been a fun discussion thus far, but we actually have to get into the meat and potatoes of the council now. So, tell me about Pope Vigilius. Yeah, Pope Vigilius was the, the pope at the time of Justinian. He's actually kind of an interesting character in his own right. Um, because he's the only pope that dies outside of Rome within that century. So he's also kind of uh, reviled in later Western history. But, well, you can you can make up your own mind once we get through the whole story. <laughs> Vigilius probably owes his becoming pope to the Empress Theodora. So he's probably somewhat beholden to Justinian in the first place for getting the position that he does. But the West is almost is basically uniformly opposed to the three chapters controversy. They think that they don't want to make this condemnation because they see it as slighting Chalcedon, as basically creating more problems than it solves. So the Western bishops pretty much uniformly say, no, we're not going to condemn this. We're not going to condemn the three chapters. But Justinian, in the interest of unity, religious and political, is trying to force the, the bishops to fall in line on this issue. And so he's doing everything that he can to apply pressure on the Pope so that the West would start you know, playing along like he wants them to. And this pressure is actually so great that Vigilius is actually compelled to come to Constantinople in 547, so where Justinian can actually personally pressure him personally, uh, try to convince him to go along with what he's doing. He's somewhat successful, but Vigilius is, continues to resist at some times and also to give in at other times. So I don't know, does he waffle because he's weak or does he waffle because he's dealing with such a huge personality like Justinian? I'm not sure. You, you can make up your right. own mind on that. <laughs> but Vigilius issues a famous document called the Eudicatum on the on April the 11th in 548, where he formally actually condemns the chapters, you know, going along with what Justinian wants. But this, of course, causes the West to be upset. And so Vigilius is kind of, he's not, he's not real happy that he had to do it. And so Justinian is now starting to actually call for a council to actually solve this question. But Vigilius figures this wouldn't be a good idea because, for one thing, the Pope wouldn't be in control of it. Because, and also for another thing, there wouldn't be very many Western um, bishops at the council itself. It'd be kind of an Eastern way of solving the problem, which ended up being true for for that sake. But Justinian becomes impatient, 
And so he issues his famous edict on the Orthodox faith, one of those important documents I talked about in the previous section in July of 551, where he formally and legally condemns the three chapters, and he actually adds a number of his own church canons to it. So I guess that gives you something of an idea of what how Justinian sees himself. Vigilius doesn't like this at all. He wants Justinian to remove it. And so on the 14th of August, uh, 551, Vigilius actually excommunicates all the bishops who support the edict. Now, how do you think Justinian would have felt about that? By what, how, does, how, does, how does Vigilius excommunicate all the bishops? Because he's the pope. Right. Because, I mean, even, even in those times, the, 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 the Roman bishop is still considered to be kind of the head. I mean, to some degree. Not to the degree that, you know, the, the popes themselves think. But at least, you know, he's saying, okay, you're going along with this. I'm going to excommunicate you. Right. Okay. Now, of course, that makes Justinian upset, understandably. So Vigilius actually takes refuge in the Church of St. Peter in Constantinople and literally clings to its altar as a way of taking refuge within the church and is only removed when soldiers come and try to forcibly remove him, but he manages to secure something of a pledge of safety that they're not going to hurt him, and so he goes with them. But he's now under house arrest. But he manages to escape on the uh, 23rd of December, 551, and flees to Chalcedon, where he actually takes refuge then in the same church where the Council of Chalcedon had been held. Now, uh, Justinian threatens him with a letter on the 31st of January, 552, which then makes Vigilius write his famous encyclical, where he describes what has been happening to him. So you can see this real conflict going on between the two of them. They're trying to, you know, come to a, a solution between Pope and Emperor, and they're butting heads constantly on this. But they do reconcile somewhat a few months later, and so Vigilius returns to Constantinople before the council begins, but he's trying to do everything that he can to, st- to stall or even prevent this council from happening, mm-hmm. which he is unsuccessful in doing. So that actually brings us up then to the year 553 and the council itself. But is there anything you want me to elaborate on, Willie, before well, we do that? let's talk about what happens to Vigilius. I mean, he, that's the least interesting, right? Right. Well, well, and that's, and that's mixed up with the council itself too. So we're, his story okay. is not done yet. <laughs> right. So. so you want to, okay, we'll get into the council and then talk about his fate. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Proceed, oh. sir. It's kind of, I mean, if the council itself is the, the main event, Vigilius's story is kind of the interweaving side plot that kind of really kind of drives this whole story forward because the council itself is pretty cut and dry mm-hmm. <laughs> by, well, pretty much by design, actually, and I'll explain why. But the first session, and there were eight sessions of the council of, of the second council of Constantinople opens on Monday, the 5th of May, 553, with about 152 bishops in attendance, virtually all of them from the eastern half of the empire. And Justinian actually instructs the council through an envoy, because he he himself never attended the council at all, which was something different from what his predecessors had done. But he tells them, okay, basically what you need to do is, is you need to go through all the evidence, you need to read these letters, and you need to figure out, you know, basically you need to uphold my decision. I mean, it really is kind of a, 
a fixed outcome. I mean, there's really no question that the the bishops are going to come to any other conclusion. I, I, and then when you go through the the the, the sessions themselves, which take place through from the fifth to about the fifth of May to about the second of June, with the eight of them, there's a lot of letter reading. There's a lot of reading excerpts from these heretics, which are intended to prove the heres the heresies which are being condemned. But there's not a whole lot of discussion. It really isn't. In fact, after they read a bunch of of these excerpts from like Theodore, they say some some pretty entertaining things. They they'll they'll shout things like, "This is anathema. This is impious. One Theodore, one Judas. This was composed by Satan. His defenders are Jews. His followers are pagan, and so on." I mean, it's just heaping abuse instead of really talking about the issues themselves. Because honestly. With uh, Justinian's edict in 551, everything's kind of a foregone conclusion. It really is. Mm-hmm. Now, is that pretty straightforward, Willie? Oh, I think so. Okay. So, what about Vigilius in the midst of all of this? Well, Vigilius is pressured to attend this council, but he refuses to do so. He keeps making up excuses, saying, This is the reason why I don't want to attend. Justinian tries to counter those excuses, and basically they come to a compromise where Vigilius has a 20-day extension, which he is granted to go through and to figure out how he feels about all of this. But during that time period, that 20-day extension, while the council is in session, Vigilius is actually beginning to write a second declaration, a a new document called the Constitution, or Constitutum, on the 14th of May, 553. In this document, he actually defends the chapters, says they shouldn't be condemned, although he does compromise a little bit and say that some of Theodoret's writings should be condemned. So he's kind of compromising a little bit in his condemnation. But what he's trying to do is avoid schism in the West, again, which is very much upholding these documents and saying, no, this is what Chalcedon said, so we, this is what we should do. And so, as a result, there's another conflict between Vigilius and the emperor. Because at the seventh session of the, the council, on the 27th of May, 553, Justinian sends a bunch of letters from Vigilius to the council basically showing how he had been waffling on this issue all along because he's trying to present him as being kind of, I don't know, uh, not really trustworthy, like we trying to discredit him, basically. And Mm -hmm. as a result, then, Justinian suggests that they should actually uh, remove Vigilius from the diptychs, which were kind of the, the prayer boards which they had in all of the churches, so he basically says Vigilius shouldn't be removed from his office, but he's being more or less suspended. Okay. The emperor is saying the Pope is, this Pope is something of a troublemaker. You know, who will rid me of this troublesome priest? <laughs> to quote a much later king, I suppose. But basically, that's how he tries to solve the issue. Now, the council kind of accepts the decree, but they kind of waffle on a little bit. They want to remain in communion with with Rome. And so that's just kind of where the, the, the council ends, with a formal condemnation of three chapters over the protests of Vigilius, an affirmation of the previous four councils, 
and the famous 14 canons of the, the Second Council of Constantinople, which were basically the canons of Justinian's edict with a few additions and a few alterations. So that's basically the council itself. It's a pretty straightforward affair, pretty cut and dried from the beginning, along with this drama that's kind of going on in the, in the background. Now, there is some aftermath that I do want to talk about, but do you want to react to that at all, Willie? I think you've got it. I mean, that's, that's exactly what happens. We're, we're seeing the, the first great rumblings of the Great Schism that's going to come up. Right. I think it's an interesting historical debate about who actually has authority if Rome is beginning to usurp authority that doesn't belong to her. Right. I think that that's a fair way to look at it. You know, fairly early on, there's this idea of an ecumenical patriarch or even a first among equals that persists even in the churches of the East until this day. But again, uh, there's no understanding of authority quite like what the Roman Pope has today. Right. You know, just, just to see that beginning to develop is is rather interesting. And of course, we'll get into the papacy, I'm sure, in episodes down the road. Right, right. Well, let me let me finish Vigilius's story then, and then we can talk about whatever we want to talk about to close out this this episode. So, <laughs> Vigilius, the decree against him from Justinian doesn't actually take full effect until the fourteenth of July. Now, that was probably intended to get him to crack under pressure, but Vigilius, remarkably enough, doesn't for at least six months. He resists the, the call to condemn the chapters for a full six months until in December of that year, December the 8th, 553, he kind of partially agrees with the council. But then the following year, um, on the February the 23rd, 554, he issues a second constitutum where he fully condemns the chapters in agreement with what Justinian had done. Okay. Now, because of his negotiations with the emperor after that, he doesn't actually set off to return to Rome until the year 555, but he actually dies uh, on the, the road in Syracuse on the 7th of June, 555. And so he's the only pope that dies outside of Rome in that century. Now, his successor, Pelagius, not to be confused with the heretic Pelagius, but Pope Pelagius, who had long been his supporter, is now made pope in his place and actually supports the council contrary to his previous position, even over opposition right. within the West. So there probably had been some agreement reached between him and, and the emperor. Right. But, I mean, that's, that's basically his story, is that so you have this opposition from the West in this pope, even if it you know waffles back and forth a little bit, but I think he's dealing with an extremely difficult situation, and it's just he did the best that he could. I mean, I don't know how I would have acted in a situation like that either, to be honest. Sure, sure. So that's that's basically the story of the Second Council of Constantinople. Yeah. So I mean, there's so many interesting tidbits and everything else that we could have put in there, but there's only so much time. Right. It's kind of like, you know, technically, Vigilius does die in Italy, but it's not Italy at the time, really. Right. It's, <laughs> you know, Syracuse is Sicily. Italy not united until fairly recently. Right. I think you could say that, let's just say that he dies in the Ostrogothic kingdom. Would that be fair? Fair enough. Uh, yeah. That would be, that would be Italy at the time. That would be the proper name, I think. <laughs> yeah. That difference between Sicily and Northern Italy is, or and Sicily and Rome, uh, 
Italy, a very diverse culture, actually. <laughs> White sauce in the north, red sauce in the south. That's it, right? It's the only yeah, The only thing, right? <laughs> the only thing. The only thing I can think of. Uh, poor poor Italy, you know. They they know what it feels like to be yeah. <laughs> to be gen- over generalized. Maybe maybe um, Machiavelli was onto something, but go on. Right. I mean, just so much in the time of Justinian to talk about, too, to say nothing of his wanting the Septuagint to be used in, shall we say, other houses of worship. <laughs> you know, that's a very interesting, just so many things to talk about. And really, though, I think what's going to resonate with us as Americans or as Westerners most is going to be the issue of religious freedom and the authority of the civil rulers in the state. Right. And then as, as Lutherans, I think the issue of church authority right. is, is interesting because we don't like to say that we are bound by church decisions. Right. And as we saw from this, people back then didn't like it either. Nevertheless, this idea, most people still stepped in line after a council pronounced something. Well, and it's also interesting because by this time period, you also have very much the idea that councils were becoming these kind of almost not, I mean, I mean, kind of the way that the Roman Catholics view them now in the sense of like, there's no way you can disagree with them. And so that's where a lot of the the conflict over Chalcedon was coming in. You know, how could Chalcedon, an official council, which they believed was coming, you know, through the voice of the Holy Spirit and all that, how could it make these mistakes? And so they're wrestling with this issue of, you know, what do we do? (laughs) Which ultimately, I think that it's reconciled fairly simply. I mean, because they're they're going to say that doctrinally there there is no contradiction. Right. Well, and they they have a lot of kind of little ways they they figured out of getting around these issues, too, by saying like that... Abus didn't actually write his that letter, and that's why he was, you know, brought into communion again. So I mean, it it's all kind of it's very interesting the 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 solutions they come up with trying to solve this issue. Are those satisfactory solutions to you? No, they're really not. <laughs> they sound pretty contrived to me, but they they're really they're really struggling with this question and with this issue in the the hopes of resolving this question in a way that would continue throughout church history you know does the pope settle questions you know are we montanists in our outlook or does the do council solve the questions are we conciliar and that's a question that doesn't actually get resolved until fairly late in church history you know in favor right. of papal uh, papal authority so i mean this in the west in the West, yeah, this debate goes on, you know, dealing well, with thankfully we thankfully, we decided that we would just settle everything by the Bible, and that really <laughs> shut everybody up, <laughs> yep, yep, we don't have any issues like that at all, so right. <laughs> yeah. it's always put it to a vote uh. When we deal with our own but, confessional documents, you know, how do we relate to them too? I mean, these kinds of questions still continue to affect us as well. Right. And there are political machinations behind a lot of our confessional documents, whether we sure. like that or not. And and we can run that, that danger too of over-romanticizing everything. Right. Or over you know, kind of re-pristinating everything. Um, you know, or, or I'll just say it this way, looking at things through rose-colored glasses. Sure. I don't think that the political motivations behind things necessarily negate the doctrinal content. No. 
or, or even to some degree, the degree to which we should be bound by them. I think that when churches make official pronouncements, they should be care. They, they should carry great weight. Sure. And, you know, we are, we're often very flippant nowadays. I mean, even going so far as to rewrite the Nicene creed or the apostles creed or whatever, you see that in churches, things like that. There are people who refuse to use the traditional definitions, specifically the Chalcedonian definitions. Right of our faith. And so we run into all kinds of troubles by not heeding them. Um, I, it, it's just kind of like the Jerusalem council, the way it's, it's brushed off completely by saying, Oh, well I eat blood sausage. Right. <laughs> that's, that's not a, that, that's a horrible argument and it shouldn't be used. And yet people do, and they're satisfied. The, these great and difficult issues of submission to church authority and just what exactly church authority is, are things that every pastor is going to have to wrestle with. I think a pastor in particular, individual Christians too, but a pastor in particular is in danger when he just says, well, I'll figure it out on my own. I, I'm my own master. Right. And it's the same thing for laymen. I mean, a layman can be that way too. <laughs> but in theory, like pastors in our fellow, in our synod have some sort of supervision and some sort of ecclesiastical oversight to whatever degree you want to take it. But for the most part, it can be brushed off, and a lot of people do brush it off. It doesn't have to be Missouri Senate. It can be any denomination. Sure. In, in America, I mean, ultimately, I mean, you're Anglican, maybe they can take your property or something like that or, or certain other denominations. But beyond that, there's really not much that can happen. And so people just say, well, I'll just do what I want. That's the caricature that Rome has of Protestants, by the way. Sure. And it's not unwarranted. In a lot of contexts. Unfortunately, yeah. And that's why we spend so much time on history. Not only because we love it, but because it's very important to us. And we can learn so much about it. But now that we've done a heavy history episode, when do I get to do Nephilim and the moon landing? (laughs) Probably pretty soon. So (laughs) There we go. Hey, if you want to hear about aliens or... Or, or, or ghosts, or uh, if you want us to just do like a coast-to-coast AM old-school Art Bell episode, let us know in the comments. <laughs> well, all right, folks. Zellin, thank you. Always a good time. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills here with Zellin Heidi. God love you, and God bless. If one would speak concisely, the Savior is composed of two different natures, for what is visible and what is invisible, and what is temporal and what is non-temporal are not the same. And yet he is not two different persons, absolutely not. He is one of two and two in one. And so, although we say there are two different natures in one and the same only begotten Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, We do not propose two sons or hypotheses or prosopa, but we understand that he exists in those natures of which he is composed. In this way, then, we affirm the difference of his divinity and flesh, denying the confusion of essence taught by the Eutychians, and at the same time we confess his one hypothesis, despising the division of Nestorius.